Well, on January 3rd, 2007, Wesley Autry, a 50-year-old construction worker from New York City, a veteran of the Navy, made a big difference, made a big difference in the life of Cameron Hollipetter's life. You see, he was taking his kids back home before he hit the late-night shift on a construction job. They were waiting at a subway station in Manhattan, his two little girls, four and six, at his side, when all of a sudden, Cameron had a seizure, and he stumbled and fell to the, to the floor of the subway station, and Wesley and two other women went to attend to his needs. He seemed to be doing okay. He got to his feet when, to their horror, he stumbled and fell right down between the tracks. And in that moment, Wesley surmised the situation, brought it all into view, and he saw train number one heading down the tracks into the station, and he had a split second to decide what to do. And he jumped down in the tracks, trying to get this young 20-year-old film student from the New York Film Academy out from the rails. He couldn't get him out. And so in an instant, he decided the only thing he could do is give him a big bear hug and try and get down low enough so that train would pass by over him. The conductor of the train saw what was going on, and he screeched to a halt, but it took five cars before that train came to a full stop. Between the grinding brakes of the train, there was the screeches of the people and the kids, his daughters, wondering what had just happened to their dad. And as the screaming and the shouting began to subsist, Wesley yelled out, I'm okay. Tell my girls their dad's okay. There was unbelievable applause and they cut the power and they got Wesley and Cameron out. And when asked about it, Wesley said this, I don't feel like I did anything spectacular. I, I, I just saw somebody in need and I, and I went and helped out. Wow. They said the grease marks of the train kind of brushed up against Wesley's hat, and he saved Cameron's life. Now, I, I've been thinking about this all week. What, what have I done? What would you do? I mean, you got your kids in your hands, and you got a split moment to decide. What would you do? I'd like to think I'd have been right there with Wesley. I don't know. I guess we never know until... It happens. But the question this morning is, how are we doing in this whole thing of meeting people who need mercy? How are we doing collectively, Door Creek Church, as a people who extend the mercy of God to those in need? How we respond to people in need reveals the genuineness of our faith. That's an easy phrase to say. But the implications that are huge, it's something I've been wrestling with all week. How we respond to people in need reveals everything about who we are. What kind of people we are. Do we really love God if we don't care for those in need? Well, there's two kinds of people in the story of the Good Samaritan. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. You're reading from verse 25 through 37. Two kinds of people. There's the first kind of person is the kind of person who just walks on by. Then there's the Wesley Autry kind of person, the Good Samaritan, who jumps right in. What kind of person are you today? 
Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, an expert in the law would be an expert in the law of God. The Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And he stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, a priest's assistant, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, these stories that Jesus often tells have a context, and and the framework here is is a question. Do you see the question? The very beginning, verse 25. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And we know from the text that the man wasn't asking an honest question, was he? He asked the question to trap Jesus, to test him this expert in the law. What he didn't know is Jesus has a black belt in conversational judo. And before he knows what's happening, Jesus comes back with bam, bam, two questions. What is written in the law? How do you understand it? And before he knows what's happening, the expert in the law who's trying to trap Jesus is answering his own question, right? The great commandment to love God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Quoting from the law, Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, 18. And Jesus says, that's right, you've answered correctly. But I was thinking about the question this week. So I'm thinking about this. Somebody asks you tomorrow, how do you go to heaven? Kids, just say you're on the bus, and, and one of your friends just went to one of their grandparents' funeral. And so they're telling you about their grandma, their grandpa who just died, and how everybody's talking about he's going to heaven. And, and your friend's saying, you go to church? I want to be with my grandpa, but I don't know how to get to heaven. How do I get to heaven? Tell me. How would you tell them? What would you say? Maybe you're a big kid here this morning, and, and someone has that question for you this week, or, or maybe that's a question you've been wrestling with. Well, I think, kids, maybe you'd come up with John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, in Jesus, will not die, but they'll have what? 
eternal life. That's heaven. It's all about faith in Jesus, right? Well, that's not what the man said. In fact, it's surprising that Jesus didn't say anything about faith, did he? Didn't say anything about believing in him. Why not? Well, I think it's because of the context. This man isn't asking an honest question. He's asking a question to trap Jesus. And I think Jesus is trying to trap the man. Here's what I'm talking about. What does Jesus say right after, in verse 28, he says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will what? What does it say in the text? You'll live. Okay, so let's work it out the other way. If we don't do this, we won't what? We won't live. We will die. We won't have eternal life. We won't go to heaven. See, the deal is the religious man, this expert in the law, thinks he's safe. He thinks he's a keeper of the law. This guy knows everything about the law. And he thinks he's perfectly keeping the law. But he's not safe. Because he doesn't understand the full dimensions of the law and what it's calling for. He doesn't understand that it's not just about external behavior. It's about our heart. And so he's about to make this clear that this man, nor any man, nor you and I, have ever loved God perfectly. None of us have ever Loved our neighbors always like ourselves. So he's about to make it clear to this proud, comfortable, religious man. He's seeking to humble this man with the law that God requires so that he would receive the love and mercy that God offers. See, that's what Jesus is doing with us this morning. He's seeking to humble us with the requirements of the law that as we understand it, we go, I can't do that. If I can't do that, how do I get to heaven? So that we'll understand the offer that he gives us in himself, offering his own son as the merciful substitute for those like that man and like me and like you who couldn't keep the requirements of the law. So there's a follow-up question, right, in this little wrestling match, this little judo match. And he comes back and he says, well, who's my neighbor? See, he's frustrated. He's trying to trap Jesus, but Jesus has him. He's got him in a full Nelson. He's taking him down. He's ready to pin him. And, And he just jumps back. Well, okay, I'm trying to justify myself before these people, before Jesus, that I am a person who knows the law, and I'm a person that keeps the law. So just to let you know that I keep the law, just explain it again. Who's my neighbor? Because I'll show you that I love that guy too. And so Jesus launches in, helping him understand the true nature of the law and the true nature of his own heart and what it really means to love your neighbor. So the question this morning is, not who, who do you most relate to in the story? Are you feeling like beaten up on the highway? You're like the guy who's, who's you know, he's just been hit by the thieves. It's not, are, are you a priest or a Levite or, or are you the Samaritan? The, the question of the text this morning for us as a church is, do we love our neighbor? I mean, do we love our neighbor who may even be an enemy who's down and, and needs help? How do we respond to the people in our lives that are in need? Because the text is telling us that the answer to that question is so important. It reveals the nature of our heart, the genuineness of our faith, and it helps us understand what our eternal destiny is. It's huge. 
Take 1 John 3, for example. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need. So the context here is in the church. You got a lot of stuff and you see somebody in need, but has no pity on him. Literally, it means closes his heart to him. How can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth. Or in Luke 6, do to others, Jesus says, as you would have them do to, do to you, the golden rule, right? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those to who, for, from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to repay in full. But here it is. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And that's what we see, not in the religious priest, not in the religious Levite, but in, of all people, the Samaritans. He loved like this. There's, there's no secret here that there's no love lost between the Jews and the Samaritans. They hated each other. And it started with the Jews hating the Samaritans, these half-breeds who sold out during the captivity and intermarried with these pagan people and now have this syncretic, syncretistic religion. They worship God and they worship idols. And the whole thing is like, this is bad. And you're bad. And you've sold out. And whenever they're looking at a Samaritan, they're looking down their noses at him. And the Samaritans always saw that. And they always hated him right back. And it's this man, a Jewish man, that the scholars will tell you that Jesus is talking about, who's there on the roadside. It's this man, his enemy, that the Samaritan reaches out to. And we got some huge lessons here on how to be a person of mercy, how to be a church of mercy. The first is this. Mercy giving comes from the heart, from a heart of love. We don't have a closed heart. We have an open heart. We, we recognize in the text that the Levite and the priest and the Samaritan man all saw the same thing. What did they see? They, they saw this man. He'd been stripped of his clothes. He'd been beaten. He'd been bloodied up. He'd been left for dead. They all saw the same thing. Nobody was confused that this man was in great need. So it's not enough to see it. But the text says the Samaritan man not only saw it, but he was moved with pity, with compassion is the word there. And he acted on it because compassion is never just this love. Man, I love you and I'm sorry, but it's a love that's now lived out in the flesh. It's a love that moves out in action. It's a heart of love that's going on here. Now, the religious leaders knew better. They knew they were to love God. They knew they were to love their neighbors themselves. They knew they were even supposed to love a stranger. It was all commanded in the law. And they knew there was this, this wild kind of command that, that even if they were going down the road and they saw their friend's ox in the ditch, they had a responsibility to pull the ox out of the ditch. So how much more? How much more? A man in the ditch. 
Mercy giving comes from a heart of love. When we love, we move out in mercy. When we don't love, we don't act with compassion. Second, mercy giving is inconvenient. I mean, what we've got to say is, this is a dangerous stretch of road, 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's all downhill, some 3,000 feet. And it was called the bloody way. Why was it called the bloody way? Not because people stumbled and f- fell over and cut themselves, because bandits were hanging out all over in the nooks and crannies and the rocks and the outcroppings of that path, and they were jumping people, and they were robbing people, and they were killing people. It was the bloody way. And I can guarantee you, the Samaritan didn't have on his iPod something that said, oh, wait a minute here, on his, uh, on his palm here, PDA. He didn't have a, oh, at about 10.30 today, I'm supposed to meet someone in the middle of the road here. Yeah, there it is. There's that schedule appointment. It's not like that. Mercy is, is inconvenient. And when we first see the opportunity for mercy, it, it looks like a, a distraction. It, it looks like a detour. It certainly is not on our schedule. But we just got the wrong schedule. Have you ever used that phrase, divine appointment? Ever use it? I realized that every time I've ever used it or heard it used, divine appointment means God put somebody in my life where I had an opportunity to share my what? My faith. I've never thought of a divine appointment as an opportunity to share God's mercy. See, it's inconvenient, the stuff of mercy. It's not on our schedule. And yet, it's where we find mercy. In the everyday stuff of life. And we need to rethink how we approach our schedule and have much more sensitivity. Guys, this is something you have for me to stay. I didn't have it. I didn't have it on my day. But I think you do. Third, mercy giving is costly. It involves sacrifice. Think about the things that Samaritan gave. He gave his time. He gave his possessions. The wine was an anesthetic. The oil, uh, uh, something for healing. He gave up his bandages. He gave up his beast of burden, the donkey. He, he gave up his money. He gives the, the innkeeper two, two silver coins. Most scholars say two to three weeks of wages, maybe more. He gives up all this. There's a sacrifice. There's a sacrifice of his own safety because it could have been a trap. Right? I mean, we know about it in our day. People set up these traps on the roadside. You go to help them out. Next thing you know, someone's got a gun pointing at you. Right? Isn't that what we tell ourselves when we go, I better not, better not. It could be a trap. I'm sure the religious leaders were thinking that. We need to be wise. But he gave up his own security as he put himself in harm's way to go and attend to this guy. Could he be the next victim? Of course, mercy giving is costly. All we need to do is think of the ultimate act of mercy, and it's the cross and it cost God his own son. A fourth lesson here is mercy giving is holistic. It's all of us reaching the whole person. All of us reaching the whole person. Mercy is recognizing that somebody's in, in a miserable situation and they need relief. Mercy is meeting people's needs through deeds. It's love in action. It's compassion. And it's the whole person that we're reaching. So the Samaritan meets his physical needs, his financial needs, his emotional needs, as he cares for this man who's been left to die. 
And we can throw in there from the scriptures, meaning a person's spiritual needs. It's the whole person. And it's not just the whole person, but it's our whole person, including not just our words, but our deeds. And so it would be a very cruel thing to come up to this man and say, dude, you are really messed up, and I'm sorry about it, but you know what? I'm really in a hurry, man. I'm sorry. Maybe I can get this stuff done. I've got to get back into Jericho, Jerusalem, depending which way he's going, and, and I'll be back for you. Really feeling bad about it. Sorry, man. Hang in there. You're going to make it. it it's, it's word and it's deed. It, it's the gospel and it's mercy. And that's how it's always been. It's always been that with God. It's what we read in Luke chapter 4. Jesus saying, you know, I've come to proclaim the gospel. But I've also come to proclaim the favor of the of the." year of the Lord, this, this, this jubilee year of bringing you freedom and from persecution and from healing from your blindness and, and lifting you up out of your oppression. It, it's, he came preaching and he came healing. There's this unbelievable passage, I've never seen it before, in Galatians chapter 2. After 14 years of ministry, Paul comes back to Jerusalem and he says, listen, I, I just want to tell you about my ministry. I've been sharing the, the gospel to the Gentiles. This is a good good word for everyone, and let me tell you what my message has been. And he went out and he told the apostles, the leaders there in Jerusalem, this is my message. And they all heard his message and said, that's, that's right, you got it right. You're hitting the nail on the head, Paul. There's one, only one thing that we ask you. And Paul says, what they asked me to do, chapter 2, verse 10 of Galatians, is remember the poor. Isn't that interesting? He's telling them all about his gospel ministry. He says, but there's just one more thing. As you go out sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, remember the poor. And Paul said, and this I was very glad to do. Very glad to do. Remember the poor. See, mercy is not to be a means to evangelism. We, we don't act kindly so that we get an opportunity to share with them the love of Christ. We're sharing with them the love of Christ even through our acts of mercy. Mercy must not be independent from evangelism. They work together to bring someone to the place where they see the mercy of God in us and hopefully have an opportunity to hear the mercy of God for them in Christ. It's the whole person meeting the whole person. Mercy giving, fifth, is rare. It doesn't happen very often. And it doesn't come from the people we'd expect. I don't know who else was on that platform when Wesley Autry was there. But I bet you if... We were told the situation and surveyed the crowd. I don't know who we'd have picked. I don't know if we would have picked the dad with two little girls in his arms. Jesus puts this story together, and he purposely puts a priest and a Levite in there. You know what a priest and a Levite is like? It's like a pastor and an assistant pastor. It's like he put my fair and good cell right in the story. Well, what's he doing there? Why the priest and Levite? Not so that we get a better understanding of the hypocrisy that's going on in the religious elite in Jesus' day. So that we'd understand the hypocrisy that goes on in a good heart. Our own heart. God, have mercy on us. As we find ourselves so often walking by like the priest and the Levite. It's a warning. For all of us who are comfortable with our faith and with our practice, 
all of us who protect ourselves from people in need. The Bible calls us to give to the poor as we remember them. The Bible tells us to sell our possessions to meet the needs of the poor. And I can tell you this, I've, I've surveyed my life, and I realized this this week. I've never sold one thing in my life to help out a poor person. I've, I've helped poor people. I've never divested myself of one thing. The scriptures repeatedly talk about selling possessions to meet needs. Talks about being open-handed to the poor, inviting them, extending hospitality, helping them, giving them justice, giving them food, defending them. A mercy giving is rare, though. The last thing LaShonda Calloway saw before she died was people literally stepping over her body. She was just going into the convenience store in Wichita just to pick up a few things. There was an altercation, she got stabbed, and she's on the floor bleeding, and the security cameras show at least five people who all did the same thing, stepped over her to go on with their shopping. One person even pulled out their phone and took a picture of LaShonda. A police representative said this, the fact that people were more interested in taking a picture with a cell phone and shopping for snacks than helping this innocent young woman is frankly revolting. Police Chief Norman Williams had even stronger words. That's crazy. What happened to our respect for life? Finally, mercy giving won't ever save you. It's really important. It's it's at the point of this conversation with the expert who asked the question, what must I do? Don't ever think that giving mercy is going to be that which saves you. We are saved by receiving God's mercy. Not by giving it, but the mark of a person who's been saved by God's mercy is that we're merciful. Titus 3, 4, and 5 puts it this way. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. His mercy. And the scriptures today reminds us we need God's mercy because we're not those kind of people. We want to be, but we know we're not. We're the kind of people who have trampled on the poor, as Amos 2, 7 puts it. I mean, the big indictment in the prophet's life in in the centuries going into captivity preceding jesus by you know 400 years before christ the big indictment of the people was you guys are are trampling on the poor and and the video camera of heaven plays our tape and it says mark you've you've trampled on people you don't even know what you've done You've, you've stepped over people you've been walking by people There's been very few times in your life where you've been jumping in. God, have mercy on us. And it's not that which saves us, but having been saved by the mercy of God, we say we want to extend mercy. And here's the deal. I guarantee you this. If you walk out of here this morning saying, I want to be more merciful, I guarantee you your eyes are going to be opened up to all kinds of situations. There's a person in your neighborhood, they just lost their wife or a a loved one. You have an opportunity for for mercy. You you, you have a friend who just lost a job, an opportunity for 
for mercy. You've got a friend whose parents are, are splitting up and it's really hard. And student, you have an opportunity for mercy. There, there's another student in your school who's got some, some big-time disabilities and everybody else is kind of avoiding them or making fun of them. You have an opportunity for mercy. It's, it's all around us. From the people that we're going to walk by today to the people in our own lives. And so what do we need to remember as we serve today? Well, we're serving from it, from mercy, not for it. What do we need to remember? That, that our deeds and our words are to point people not to Door Creek. It would have been fine with me if it didn't even have Door Creek on here. Because this isn't about Door Creek today. This is about our great God, his mercy And when we have an opportunity, I I hope we'll be quick to say, the God I know has been so good and merciful to me, and it's my privilege to extend his mercy to anybody today. As we go out, we ask God to open our eyes. Open our eyes to the people around us. You know, for me, I'll just admit it, I'm a list guy. And if I was on this project, I'm going to kind of cruise around and see you all working. But if I was in a project, I just know my disposition. It's like we got a job to do. Let's get it done. Let's do a great job. And if we're cleaning this park, there better not be another piece of litter left on this park when we get out of here. And you know what? That's great. But that's really not what it's about. And so I'd be going around picking every piece of litter up, and I'd miss the people that God's want me to talk to. And so it's people over projects today, okay? Ask God, God, open my eyes. Is there there somebody I'm supposed to be interacting with? Is Is there somebody you want me to just extend your mercy, your kindness to? And don't let this day be an event in your life. Don't let it be an event. Let it be an event that becomes a catalyst for a new way of living. A year ago, when we were in the midst of coming up with our vision, I was driving downtown. I went right by the Kohl Center. And it was as if God just gave me this picture, this vision of thousands. How how many does the Kohl Center hold? Who knows? It's a lot, right? 14, 15? I don't know what it is. It's a lot of people. So this vision was the doors open up and people are just streaming out of the Kohl Center. And it's all these believers in Madison. African Americans and Hispanics and Asians and People all over the city who've come together from different denominations. Yeah, there's just us white folks who are there too. And we're, we're all there and we've been worshiping our great God together and we're walking out to go serve our city. I don't know if that'll ever happen. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a cool, wouldn't that be a cool thing for Madison to know about those who follow and love Christ in this city? that we can come together and worship and come together to serve our city. Well, where do you start? Where do you start in this life of being a merciful, this generous life of sharing God's mercy and compassion? It's to think through the circles of your relationships. I mean, just think about it. Your own family, your extended family. You know anybody in your family right now that's going through a hard time? That hard time is an opportunity for mercy. You know anybody in God's family right here in this church? I can tell you this. There's a lot of us who are going through really hard things that could use a touch of God's mercy. In the 4th century, the Roman emperor Julian wrote this. As he was trying to revive paganism, he set up these hospices for the poor. He said, 
it is disgraceful that while the impious Galileans, speaking of Christians, he said this, it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans support both their own poor and ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. And that's a disgrace, he says. What a tribute to the church in the 4th century. That the Roman emperor knew that the church took care of their own and they took care of others. Keep going in that circle, your neighborhood, your school, your work, this city, the world. Open your eyes. Let God open your hearts as we seek to be a people changing lives to change the world. What are we trying to do in changing lives, changing people to be what? Devoted followers of Christ who change the world with what? His love. This is the love. The good news of a merciful God who sent his own son to die in our place. This is his love as we go out shining for Christ, letting our good deeds point people to our merciful Father. Let's pray. Dear God, we confess that we are a lot more like priests and Levites than we are like a good Samaritan. And we thank you that you are the ultimate, Lord Jesus, in a good Samaritan, laying down your own life. You who had the riches of heaven became poor that we might become rich. You gave your life that we might live. And we worship you and we thank you and we pray that having received your mercy, we would grow to be a merciful people, that we would grow to be a merciful church. Lord, help us, even as we go from this place, to be merciful even as our Father in heaven is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.